0: Hello everybody and welcome back to Blockchain One Save the World on tour. It's the last destination of season 2 before a very special finale episode and where better to go than the country that many credit for being the birthplace of the blockchain movement, Canada. Yep, you heard it right. Canada has had a surprisingly significant influence on the Bitcoin white paper, the founding of Ethereum, CryptoKitties, the Blockchain Research Institute and much more. While Canadians are famously modest about their achievements, I'm going to do my civic duty and shine a light on the impressive blockchain projects, the people and associations behind the rise of blockchain in Canada. This just might be the most enlightening show we've ever produced. And we've got a very special guest speaker for this episode's bonus round. We start with the rich history of blockchain in Canada, brought to you by Joseph Weinberg, co-founder of Shift, Louisa Bai from Stellar Development Foundation, Amy Taha legal counsel at Global University Systems, and Hilary Carter, VP of Research at the Linux Foundation.
1: Very early on, what made Canada so unique was we were a very small country by population. We've always been a very collaborative country. And so there's not a lot of division. And being such, I think, like a, a welcome and open society and, and also just a cultural facet to Canadians, it really made for what was a very burgeoning, early kind of meetup group-esque type environment where people would very, very early, 2012, 2013, 2014, find each other very quickly, come together into you know communities and small groups and start talking about ideas. Right. And that's where I think the foundations of this whole ecosystem really started at the time. It was a a fairly young demographic of people. And so a lot of people in kind of, I think that age group were really excited about, you know, the ideas around what Bitcoin was and what it could be. And then of course, levering that out into other experimental ideas. Like I was there when they first wrote the white paper, what would be then called Ethereum in Toronto. And so I think like the early days were really about ideas and just it wasn't really financialization at all. It was really around this concept of like if we could enable Bitcoin to be a power of good in the world, what would that accomplish? And it was just a group of people who all had the same beliefs. And I think what made Canada so unique is that there was so many people that felt that same way and who so were, were so interested in in the future and in ideas. I think Toronto is really where it kicked off. I moved to Toronto in early 2013, which is really was kind of the the best time you probably could have been in Toronto for when we really started to kind of see the ecosystem take off and it really became the epicenter of not only ideas in crypto, but tinkering and, and, and the earliest parts of R and D and research and innovation across this now, of course, big industry. I'd never seen or experienced a situation where we would have a meetup uh, at a place called The Central, just off King Street in Toronto, uh, led by Anthony DiOrio. Uh, it was the only place where you would have any type of person from any type of background. Not, And I'm not talking about multicultural, although Canada is very multicultural. I would mean from the concept of a local regulator would come in for the, you know, Wednesday meetups and, and then, uh, you know, a banker and you'd have technologists and you'd have miners and you'd have the kids from university. Like it was truly a, an open environment, which I think led to this really amazing gathering of people that just started like really expanding and rapidly growing like wildfire. And I know that in, in maybe 2016 or 17, What started as these small meetups, to give you a sense of the size, one of my co-founders, Sunny Ray, is also a Bitcoin early adopter and also helped myself and Anthony Diorio really kind of establish digital assets or blockchain and crypto in Canada. The meetups that we started to run ended up having, on a monthly basis, over 1,200 people come to them. I loved that time of the space because it wasn't all about money, where I think as we institutionalize, it becomes very focused on the financialization of these systems, but at that early time, it was a lot more about how do we create change? How do we help people? How do we build new things that have never been done before to ultimately benefit this wider group of people in society that don't have access to the things that we in the West do today?
2: To be honest, if I can be frank and a little bit harsh here, I think we've stagnated a little bit. We've lost some of the momentum that we've built up from the onset of blockchain and DLT's history. So if I think back to 2012, 2013, when Vitalik met Anthony Diorio, and when the white paper for Ethereum came out, and let's not forget Joe Lubin, another Canadian who was part of the co-founder cohort of Ethereum, they really kick-started that momentum for the blockchain community here in Canada. And then I think back to our old stomping grounds, Deloitte, with the founding of Rubik's, the first blockchain consulting company in the world, I would say, founded in 2014. That was a lot of momentum. And then 2016, There was Project Jasper, where the Bank of Canada came together with some of the the larger banks to put on a research project to figure out whether or not this technology had any legs to stand on or whether it could solve for a real problem. And then the past couple of years, you have larger enterprises that have been fiddling around with this technology and trying to identify meaningful use cases. And I remember saying this when I was at Deloitte because we were all part of the fight and trying to push wider adoption for this technology. None of the organizations saw a real benefit for them to implement this technology into production. They just didn't see the ROI associated with reshifting their overall infrastructure and replacing things with distributed ledger technology.
3: Canada has an incredible legacy starting with, let's just go right back into 2008 to the Satoshi's white paper, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. If you actually look at that white paper, there's, I think, eight academic papers referenced and three references are in particular to a Canadian, Scott Stornetta. He's referenced three times. He's based in Toronto. He's a Tour at the Creative Destruction Lab, which is uh, an incubator accelerator, objectives-based accelerator, I would say, for frontier technology, trying to implement some really interesting tech into business applications. So we really start there. And then, of course, 2012, Anthony Diorio starting the Toronto Bitcoin Meetup group. We can just follow that whole history into Canada's first Bitcoin association, the Bitcoin Alliance of Canada, and then in 2013, Vitalik authoring Ethereum's white paper, proposing, you know, a next-gen smart contract and decentralized application platform. And then the following year, in January, Decentral launching in Toronto. And then Canada's public and private sector leaders launching the world's first digital identity and authentication coalition, which is DIAC. And it goes on. That's just in 2014. And here we are in 2022. And so much has happened
4: since <laughs> it's gone from a very close knit community of Bitcoin enthusiasts to a burgeoning ecosystem of innovators and scholars and pioneers. Really in the early days, there were meetups that attracted a few computer scientists, enthusiasts, hackers, and just those who were really interested in Bitcoin. And it was in that kind of environment that communities formed around cryptocurrency and really it was in that meetup environment that ethereum was born because it was at such a a meetup that i believe vitalik buterin first met anthony diorio and the rest is history two of the four uh, listed co-founders of ethereum in vitalik's first blog and what has been really fascinating is to have been part of some of the earlier meetups not quite that closed uh, initial group at the dawn of Ethereum. But very shortly after, the size of the meetups began to expand from something in the number of 75 people coming out for an evening to all of a sudden it was 150 people at my second meetup. And then there were 400 people. And in 2017, in September, there were approximately 1,200 plus folks coming out to a meetup. So that was the year of tremendous interest in blockchain in Canada.
0: From the early Bitcoin miners to the founding of Ethereum, the blockchain community in Canada has had an impressive and almost entirely organic history of growth. We hear about the OGs, the blockchain visionaries and the different cities that birthed Canada's blockchain community from Emma Todd, CEO of MHH Technology Group, Hilary, George Petrovich, professor at George Brown College, and more from Amy Taha.
5: So when I first started, it was just purely uh, a lot of developers and people, just, you know, like me a little bit curious that we're in this space. I wish I could show you a photo. I have one somewhere. I'll email it to you. I went to a meetup at Mars, which is our innovation hub here in Toronto. And I went to a meetup and it was 500 people. It was 495 men and five women. <laughs> and I just totally stood out. You know, if you see me, I've got really big hair. And they were like, who are you? Uh, what do you do? And then, then they were like, okay, you know, um, I told them how I was, you know, how I was interested in blockchain. And it just sort of really, they're like very accepting because the community needs more people to You know, get out there and spread the word. So they were very, very accepting of me. And then from there, I went out and discovered that in Vancouver, they've got a thriving hub of uh, people who are interested in blockchain. And guess what? So does Alberta. Alberta's absolutely killing it, and they've got all these really great companies that are doing some great things, like Patina Payments, which alternative to banking. And we've got some really great companies and also in Montreal and, you know, um, it's a pretty thriving scene. I'm pretty happy to be proud of it, be part of it rather.
4: (laughs) Yeah. There's much more diversity now than when I first joined, I was among the only women in blockchain at the time. Uh, There were really less than 5% of us in the room. I will say that in those early days with some of the, you know, now more famous pioneers, the atmosphere was incredibly welcoming. Folks were interested in solving some big problems and working together and really believing that through community and through good technology, a lot of positive change could be made. And so I think the atmosphere is one that's very family-like. Those of us in the Canadian ecosystem know each other. We know who we are, who's been around a long time. I think we have the opportunity to open a lot of doors for each other, and it's it's a really, really positive community on the whole. I've really enjoyed being part of it. I think the leaders of the community, the constituents, are the early pioneer technologists. I'll name a few names. Ethan Buckman, who was part of Tendermint, the first proof of stake blockchain, Who, and then he's gone on to create Cosmos. You know, of course, Vitalik. These are extraordinarily talented, intelligent people, and they have inspired a following. That today now includes academics, students, enthusiasts, uh, and I think the participants who are not yet part of the blockchain constituency are people from government, people from enterprise. The barriers to their participation are rooted in misinformation about what is going on, that this is a space that is deemed to be disreputable, associated with crime, associated with Ponzi schemes. And and I think consequently, we don't have as much representation from traditional industry or government.
6: So by default, Canada is a very uh, diverse country. Same thing in the blockchain. It touches pretty much every sector of, uh, of blockchain. So we have a lot of developers, a lot of startups, entrepreneurs, There are quite a few I'm surprised on the amount of uh, mining farms they have and usually uh, they're in Alberta or Quebec and for obvious reasons like the temperature or the uh, energy subsidies that they have. If we're talking specifically about the communities, uh, you have meetups that are specific to blockchain related like a Bitcoin Cash meetups, Cordana meetups. And I think the largest one in Canada, it's called Bitcoin Bay. They're the largest and the longest running Bitcoin community and they have about 10,000 members or nearing 10,000 members. And they've done a great job because now they're also in Argentina, India, and Dubai. You have people that are from C-level executives from a financial world. You have developers, uh, startups, and entrepreneurs. It's very diverse, and the majority of it for those that don't live in Canada, they have to understand that basically everything comes into three cities. So it's Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal. Pretty much all of the meetups happened there.
3: It has, I think, fragmented in some way. It was really strong with a few groups at the beginning, Decentral, and of course, the Toronto Bitcoin meetup being super strong. A lot of, I feel like the community, and this could just be my own experience and not really representative, but have really been centered around their own projects, whereas it used to be more focused on less the project and more the promise of what the technology was enabling. And now it is, everybody is so devoted to their projects. There's just a little bit less time to focus on community building for the sake of strengthening the community for its own sake.
0: As our guest mentioned, there have been a number of different associations and factions form over the years in Canada, and it's safe to say Canada has more blockchain associations than almost any country in the world. We get a breakdown of ICTC, the Canadian Blockchain Consortium, the Canadian Blockchain Association for Women, the Blockchain Supply Chain Association, and the Bitcoin Mining Council, from Eric Lejour, VP of Capacity and Innovation at ICTC, Janine Moyer, Digital Assurance Leader at Deloitte, Alexis Pappas, Chief Innovation Officer at Guild One. Eric Vallaquette, CEO of the Blockchain Supply Chain Association. Jamie Leverton, the CEO of HUD8 Mining. And a final flourish from Hillary Carter.
7: It's some kind of a wave, right? Because associations are really surging at the initiatives of, of some leading individuals. And there, there is a, an aspect of timing also for. For these individuals to pop up. I'm um, very blessed to have been uh, part of ColliderX with Ileana Valiente. Emma Todd, Mawad uh, at the time, a few other people were there. So that was just at the time when Ileana left Deloitte. So Deloitte has been a breeding ground in Toronto for the blockchain scene. Ion move a lot of the doers, thinkers, and makers of the blockchain in Toronto have been coming out of Deloitte. So at the time, Ileana was leaving Deloitte. She was launching ColliderX. I joined as part of the founding team there. And uh, what is ColliderX, you would ask. It's uh, R&D for innovation in blockchain mainly, but also exploring emerging technologies like AI. At the time, there was uh, an interest at the federal government that was back in 2017 to explore the concept of regional clusters. And we definitely have some of those clusters, as I mentioned, uh, the Toronto uh, Waterloo corridor, one of them. Uh, There is some very good remnants of Nortel for very qualified uh, uh, IT staff in Canada. And I'm just talking about Toronto, but Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary, they are very hot spots, which are actually very well covered by some of our uh, study at ICTC. where that shows where the labor market here, where the skills are too. Uh, so we decided to, it was the time for blockchain to be on the map, and uh, we decided to put together a submission to the federal government to uh, make the case for a blockchain supercluster. Uh, so um, we rallied the industry. We were very lucky to have uh, Don Tapscott and the Blockchain Research Institute at the time to rally with us, actually, obviously very big players at the time, and, you know, even bigger players now. We rallied the first blockchain association, was uh, the BAC, Blockchain Association of Canada, formerly known as the Bitcoin Association of Canada. Uh, that was really the first in place in Canada very early, starting very early, so very knowledgeable people in this association. We had another association in Toronto led by uh, Alan Wunsch, the Blockchain uh, Blockchain Association of Toronto. We had a lot of big firms like IBM, small firms, and we collected about fifty million dollars in pledges that we added to the business case. And uh, hopefully, the deal was to be uh, funded at fifty percent by the government. Have a very nice cluster funded to the tune of hundred million dollars. We got some sympathy at the and some good here at the federal government. I'm very pleased. You know, 2017 was a little bit of a, <laughs> of a hot zone. If you think about it retrospectively, there were a lot of ICOs, and I think maybe the government at the time decided maybe it was not it would be a little bit confusing <laughs> to uh, you know to issue a super cluster and really focusing on industry blockchain technology, how we bring that to the enterprise, and how we take you know technology to another level of R and D and commercialization. A few years later, uh, I think I think the Toronto seed became more internationalized. Uh, the Blockchain Research Institute actually uh, started to work with uh, INSEAD, the famous business school in France, in Fontainebleau. They started to expand in other countries. So a lot of local projects uh, started in the Caribs. I mean, a lot of actions started to happen on the business side, outside of Toronto. So there was some, some kind of maybe depressurization in Toronto, if we could you know, say it that way. At the same time, um, Calgary started to you know pick up speed, and today we have a very solid uh, blockchain association in Calgary that rallied a lot of the interest. I think a lot of uh, industry also started to uh, to go there and support this great initiative, which is picking up speed there. And certainly Montreal and Vancouver has been really hot spot, especially Vancouver with Professor or Doctor Lemieux here he, he has been an anchor, especially on the academic side of things. I cannot be exhaustive, of course. I mean, there's a lot of things happening also in, in smaller provinces, but you know, smaller, but mightier in some aspect. Uh, like Nova Scotia has been very dynamic, very entrepreneurial uh, and knowledgeable people there in, those, uh, in the Maritimes as well.
8: One of the things that I've been involved with for a long time, it's now called the Canadian Blockchain Consortium. But it did start as the Alberta Blockchain Consortium, and and I live in Alberta. The whole intent and purpose was, hey, how can we support companies and people who are in this community, and how can we get blockchain recognized on a national stage or by governments or by regulators so that they understand how critical and important this emerging sector is for our economy? So certainly, when we started in Alberta, we were more in a crypto winter oil and gas prices were down but there's a ton of activity and a ton of people who are incredibly strong who are in alberta as i was on the board of that and we agreed as a board hey this needs to go national because we need to have a national voice because in canada we have more national regulation versus province specific or like the us there can be state by state type regulations so generally you're looking at a national kind of voice that's needed In my opinion it's the best and the brightest in the country are all speaking or have some kind of relationship with the canadian blockchain consortium whether it's attending sessions that we facilitate with regulators to give feedback on proposed regulation that they have or being part of expert committees where we're helping to drive and inform the conversation there's so many people across canada from coast to coast who provide value in this space the community is so strong that I know if I really have a question and they're so supportive, I can pop into our telegram and say, hey, I'm I'm curious about this. What does this mean? What is the impact? Here's what I think it is. Can you fill me in? And And often people are willing to help me within a matter of hours. So I think it's a wonderfully strong community.
9: The Canadian Blockchain Consortium, where I'm a director, as well as the editor of our monthly magazine, which everyone should check out, has really been a driving force for getting government engaged in our industry, for getting all kinds of different industries interested in blockchain technology and what it can do for their business, and The strength of our ecosystem, I think, has led to a much greater baseline level of education in Canada on what blockchain is and how it can solve business challenges than uh, in other parts of the world, and we're constantly getting you know, uh, inbound requests from industries that, you know, we wouldn't normally consider as being, you know, cute blockchain adopters like things like agriculture and the mining sector. Simply because we've been able to raise the awareness that this is a powerful tool and is something that is going to be a strong part of the economy going forward
10: we tend to bucket our members into six categories of course we have the manufacturing world right the importers the exporters mining aerospace agriculture is very big here and we we want to support them because they will be the initiators of a lot of these solutions But additional to that, who is impacting the supply chain, right? We have governments, government agencies, like the Customs of the World, or the Food Inspection Agencies, or the Pharmaceutical Inspection Agencies, Health Agencies. So we work with these governments and the governing bodies, people like the folks who establish standards globally, ISO, we're part of ISO, or the Standard Council of Canada. We did a fantastic workshop establishing the roadmap for Canadian blockchain a few weeks ago we get involved with governments governing bodies to help shape policy to to be the voice for our members listen to these governments right to see what their priorities are and bring that back to our members as well so governments manufacturing academics and research and other associations the learning people we have a fantastic community around Three uh, cities in Canada, and, and you know it's not limited to, but Toronto with the University of British Columbia, UBC. Out of two hundred and thirty schools globally, UBC was recognized as the number one university in Canada and the twenty eighth in the world for blockchain programs and and research centers. You also have folks in Toronto has a great community here in Montreal too with Concordia, Jeremy and Addy, all great people pushing. You know, the next generation of um, blockchain enthusiasts.
11: There's a lot made of it, but the reality of the data is Bitcoin mining uses 0.142% of global energy produced. So it's a very, very small amount. It's equivalent to the energy consumption used by holiday lights. And you don't see a big backlash against holiday lights. For their energy consumption. So it's a very tricky, very nuanced conversation. It's what led to the formation of the Bitcoin Mining Council. And really that's a group of industry participants. We now have almost 50% of the Bitcoin mining community globally as members of the Bitcoin Mining Council. And really the purpose of the council is to get objective data out into the broader narrative so that we can, we can have a conversation that's more based on objective data and facts.
4: I think our associations in Canada have not been as strong. There's been a lot of change with respect to what began as uh, the Bitcoin Association became the Blockchain Association of Canada, and then it became associated with the Digital Chamber of Commerce, uh, which is a very successful association. In the United States, but there has not been a consistent voice for the ecosystem in Canada. So I think at the association level, we could do a lot better. It requires leadership and funding, and those are challenges because the sources of the funds are often from enterprises with deeper pockets than some of the startups. In terms of institutes or nonprofits, I think that's where Canada has done exceptionally well. And I'm going to give a shout out to my former employers at the Blockchain Research Institute, Don Tapscott and Alex Tapscott, who founded the think tank that now hosts a massive library of insight into blockchain challenges, opportunities, use cases, and they have provided evidence that will help all innovators the world over try to overcome some of the barriers to encourage more widespread adoption and understanding of what is going on and what isn't going on. Certainly for the Linux Foundation, while we're not headquartered in Canada, uh, we have an important role to play. The Hyperledger community is, is global. The enterprise DLT technologies are very much in play in Canada.
0: So let's dig into some use cases. Canada has had some early success with NFTs and enterprise adoption of blockchain, And to take us through their favorite examples, we have Janine, Amy, Hillary, Eric, and Louisa.
8: Definitely would be CryptoKitties and NBA Top Shot from Dapper Labs. So there's some really big and kind of original things that came out of Canada that you'll see others trying to, frankly, copy. Like CryptoKitties was the first. It was wild. I remember trying to figure out how to buy one and I just felt like I basically had to go down an alley to buy it. So it was still pretty early on, but top shot is massive for the industry. And you can see all these other sports teams are trying to do the same thing, or they have things in the hopper. So it's been really interesting to actually see that so much has come out of Canada and many, many of the cryptos out there are an Ethereum clone or some level of, we can do it better than Ethereum. And I mean, it's your personal preference on it, but Ethereum has been a base for a, a huge amount of it.
3: There are so many exciting projects and people are rallying around sort of the next craze as it seems. So, you know, CryptoPunks being a recent example, a project launched in June, 2017 by Larva Labs Studio uh, by two Canadian developers actually. And so then you see this NFT craze and then communities building up around That particular movement and that being part of a broader part of the cryptocurrency and decentralized finance ecosystems on multiple blockchains. So, we've really seen this evolution and the communities following that evolution. Purpose Investments introduced the world's first ever Bitcoin exchange traded fund. And so, that was, I think, a very exciting moment for Canada. Canada's central bank is studying the advisability of implementing a central bank digital currency. That is something that I'm following very closely. There are so many, I love what's happening in the digital identity space. There are a number of projects. Login ID is a FIDO2 compliant biometric authentication and verification solution that is integrating on certain blockchains to ensure greater security within their uh, various platforms in an easy way. There's a lot of projects that are deploying fractionalized interests in either collectibles, uh, rare cars, and vehicles, or real estate projects. So there's a really interesting opportunity to follow what's happening and to see how these coalesce together. We've got renewable resource mining companies, Ocean Falls Blockchain, which is really interesting and producing captive insurance products. There's just so much. It's just really a space that's on fire.
4: I was so pleased that the premier hospital in Canada is called the University Health Network, ran an extraordinarily successful pilot using IBM blockchain, which is underpinned by Hyperledger Technologies. And it was a patient portal, which allowed patients to securely store their health information and um, consent through a a built-in consent framework to share those records with researchers and and know who accessed their data, why was their data accessed and for how long was the data accessed and have total ownership over their health information and and be in control and, and contribute in a productive way to the research process. This opens the door to potential monetization of health records for creating a cure, for example, for a rare disease or even a less rare disease.
10: By far, my favorite, DLT Labs and Walmart Canada, a well-known production solution that's been in effect for, I think, over a year and a half now. And Walmart globally, big thought leaders in the blockchain world, especially around supply chain. What Walmart Canada did is they put their freight payment system on blockchain. So imagine this, right? Uh, Walmart Canada uses about 70 trucking companies to pick up their goods from their distribution centers and brings them to their Walmart store. So in your typical logistics shipment, right? you, You have a trucking company that picks up goods, brings it to its destination, delivers it, sends the invoice to a client, in 70% of half a million shipments annually between Walmart Canada and their trucking companies, that invoice was in dispute because of certain surcharges or overpayments or underpayments, but there was a dispute mechanism, right? That's very common in the industry where you do something, you invoice it, if the billing's wrong you dispute it you send emails back and forth to resolve it once it's resolved it gets paid uh, it finally gets paid and in walmart's case it was six to eight weeks delay so imagine the cash flow slowing down to all these trucking companies pick up the goods at the distribution tech center get to the walmart store I think the contract says you have about 30 minutes to offload the truck. If it takes longer, I can bill you additional surcharges. I can bill you for waiting time. Send the invoice, back and forth emails about the dispute, resolve the dispute, pay the invoice. Well, in this case, using blockchain, both Walmart Canada and these 70 different trucking companies have shared visibility because of the ledger, right? The shared ledger, they can be proactive But what has made a big difference on these 70% of disputed invoices on half a million shipments is that the invoice after being sent after the fact, after the service has been completed, actually starts at the very beginning. So pick up the goods, invoices generated there. Do your shipment, arrive at the Walmart store. If there's a, a surcharge or waiting time, uh, you know, in, in many of the cases, they can be proactive about it because, they, again, they have the shared visibility on our platform. So they can either take action right away and call the local store and say, hey, you have, I don't know, 10 minutes left, so you better offload the truck or you'll get surcharges, right? Or they can pre approve that extra charge, thus eliminating the dispute because they know that that store is having problems today. So by Pre-approving that dispute, it, in fact, eliminated the dispute. And by doing this, they've been able to virtually eliminate 100% of all the disputed invoice on half a million shipments. So from 70% of disputed invoices down to below 1% today.
2: But one thing that I'm extremely proud of is the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority and how they have implemented blockchain to look at container trackment containers that are coming into Canada via the Port of Vancouver and the process that they originally used for detecting contraband that was implemented by CBSA, they realized it was a huge bottleneck and they wanted to leverage something more innovative like blockchain. And uh, we worked very closely with them in getting that project off the ground and being able to see real value by reducing examination time from north of, I don't know, 25 days to less than five business days. Like that to me is real value added by leveraging blockchain technology overall. And the unique thing about this is that they're now looking at combining blockchain technology with IoT and furthering developing on the solution that they built to achieve further operational efficiencies.
0: And in Time on a tradition, we always go a level deeper and shine a light onto some of the most interesting projects and teams working with blockchain technology. We start with John S. Lee, head of blockchain at Shopify, Joseph and Shift, Derek Emsley, the CEO of Veritree, Alexis and Guild One, and finally, Janine and Deloitte.
12: Shopify is an e commerce platform that allows brands and merchants to own their own storefront and create their online storefront, leveraging the tool set that we've built out as a platform. Shopify is built uh, as a platform where we interact with thousands and thousands of partners who help build out better ecosystems and better products and better features for merchants. Shopify had already been enabling the payment of cryptocurrency for a number of years before, but there wasn't really a team internally that was looking at blockchain more concretely about what we could do. Also around the time last year is when the NFT conversation got really started. By mid-year, we were getting calls from our merchants asking when they could sell NFTs. We created a beta program to explore what was possible, and we currently have a program in place to allow merchants to sell NFTs on the Shopify storefront. We had to stage our approach. So we initially launched in the US. We are exploring how to expand that out into more jurisdictions. The the reality is the demand is global. Like there are companies and brands all across the world that are asking us, can I sell NFTs on my storefront? And we just need to do a staged rollout uh, just because every single jurisdiction has a different framework around what is an NFT and the regulatory framework that they use in order to regulate the sale of an NFT is a little bit fragmented. We don't want to provide a feature to a merchant that gets them in trouble. So we are doing some explorations around that and uh, we'll see where we get to. The biggest thing that we're kind of focused on is this concept of NFT gating generally, because I think we are now after a year of really heavy NFT work going on that people are waking up to, how do you draw value to the set of NFTs that's been released and all of the net new blockchain addresses that's been created? Part of that is providing value through gated activities. Shopify is focused on providing NFT gated commerce, where the concept of ownership of an NFT gives you access to certain rights when it comes to commercial relationships with merchants and projects. But beyond that, like just the general concept of gating access to something using an NFT, I think is now primed to actually be the next big push within this space. It really is a true decentralized approach to creating the rule sets around which, hey, these are ad hoc communities that you can create on the fly. To give them access to something that they previously did not have access to. And you don't need to maintain an internal database of tables of who has access and who doesn't have access and permissioning rights. All of these can be driven through a very ad hoc distributed manner by just looking at ownership of NFTs within wallet addresses. I mean, how how many times do you talk to someone that says, oh, I knew them before they were popular. They may have purchased an album of theirs, but Really, like, how do you prove that? Well, now you can. And now the actual f- true fans or, or first fans of, of, a, of a band can self-identify by showing the set of NFTs they have in a wallet. And that becomes a true social validation that, that could happen strictly because uh, NFTs are such, uh, have become such a big part of what commerce should look like.
1: The biggest things in the institutional world revolve around identity. Identities of businesses, identities of of people, the extensions of identities are what really are important, i.e. how do you deal with compliance? How do you deal with know your customer requirements, KYC? From a regulatory perspective, we recognized these would be the places and the battlefields where our ecosystem would have to fight. We really kind of took a forward approach to this. We started working on systems and infrastructure, which is Shift today, which really would allow us to build identity-related applications such that we could build systems that would allow the sharing of data and information across any type of a counterparty, whether it be a government sharing with a corporation, a corporation sharing user data to a user or on behalf of a user, we needed a blockchain based and smart contract based system that could effectively solve compliance and or these trust related requirements across any type of environment where that led over the last three years is i started advising the oecd and the financial action task force and wrote some of the first regulations uh, in countries around the world for digital assets to give us a place to call home if you will that were legislations or legislative changes to uh, certain governments that would give crypto acceptance we were working on systems that would allow us to build a lot of the requirements for those new regulations so Today, we kind of have three core focuses at SHIFT. One is building national identity infrastructure for governments. This looks at the question around how do I build decentralized identity that would allow users to have full control over their data, allow governments and institutions to share and build data markets around that data, such that users are paid for data, and that you build more efficiency from uh, the perspective of a government down to the user the two that i've been more excited and focused on specifically are on uh, industry direct uh, compliance related issues and so we have two other really big pieces of infrastructure on shift one is called veriscope veriscope is effectively the equivalent of swift in the traditional banking system the messaging system that ties identity information to the payments that move through the financial system And so the system that is being designed and developed today on top of shift uh, in collaboration with about 45 exchanges globally, they are now being required by law by the FATF to effectively share KYC data prior to every deposit or withdrawal from every exchange in the world. What is basically going to happen over the next two years is every crypto transaction you do, you will now have to attach securely the kyc's information on both a sender and receiver a user or users of these these new institutions so what shift does is it allows us to build this decentralized data network that effectively allows us to determine the rules and the data sharing coordination requirements for how this information moves. So what this looks like is effectively this big, large data network that sits across all crypto networks and allows us to effectively blindly share identity on a privacy basis, such that we're meeting regulatory requirements, allowing institutions to now be comfortable entering the space, and also making sure we do not sacrifice decentralization, anonymity, privacy, uh, and the security of users or the exchanges in the ecosystem today. And then, of course, the third one, which is looking a bit more into the future, is a system which is effectively an on-chain compliance solution, or a what we call a compliance and identity primitive. Those primitives are what are effectively base layer uh, innovations that allow us, in the context of DeFi, to build fully institutional DeFi across all protocols, all smart contracts and all systems. Uh, so in the case of DeFi today, you know you don't know who your customer is. You're trading on the on DEX, a decentralized exchange. You do not know who is involved in those trades. It could be money laundering funds. It could be terrorism financing related funds. And so what we are deploying is a system that allows a layer on top of all of this permissionless innovation that gives us these like opt-in privacy centric KYC and compliance rules so that you can now allow the largest institutions to fully enter into DeFi and not have the risks of regulation involved, but still maintain all the benefits that these systems provide to the world.
13: The mission behind there is to accelerate global restoration projects through technology you know if you look at the next 30 years and the the need to decarbonize the reality is is that the actual market for decarbonization projects needs to grow by you know 100x and the nature-based solutions as a percentage of that should make up as much as a third but today they make up roughly 1%, largely because of a lack of transparency, lack of things like permanence and additionality. And as a result, there's very little investment going into the space. And so what Veritree is, is it's an integrated planting management platform that takes data directly from the ground, focuses first and foremost on ground truth, which is an incredibly sort of challenging, complex, area to solve for in global reforestation and weaves that into the entire project to ensure that you're gathering the right data you're solidifying it in an open transparent way you're ensuring that there's no double counting and then you're able to monitor that project for the lifetime of it through things like geospatial remote sensing and things like that when i think of the sustainability initiatives that are happening I truly believe that blockchain has a meaningful part to play in this. And, and there's a number of reasons for it. When you look at the the existing carbon offsetting world, and you think truly to the product that you're buying there, you know, you're buying air at the end of the day. And when you when you compare that to tree planting, it's arguably you know, the same thing. It's a it's a tangible physical tree, but at the end of the day, very few people are going to go and visit that tree. There's this entire carbon and frankly the entire sustainability industry is based on trust at the end of the day when you look at the infrastructure that's in place right now there's disparate registries there's thousands and thousands of middlemen thousands and thousands more project developers frankly there's very little overlap there's very little transparency and you see press releases coming out every couple days of projects that issued more offsets than they could ever hope to create or you see projects that you know frankly issued tens of millions of dollars in offsets and burnt down and there was no recourse there was no ability for the funder to actually know if their offsets were a part of that or they weren't ultimately for us if we can create a globally transparent ledger or open marketplace of carbon and whether it's carbon, whether it's trees, whether it's the thousands of other benefits that can come from nature-based solutions or not. Really it's, it's being able to see clear ownership, make sure there's no double counting, make sure there's clear understanding of permanence and overall sequestration and things like that. And ensure that 10 years from now, when we look back and, and we say, did we hit our trillion tree pledge or our net zero commitments? And we're celebrating that hopefully, yes, we did. It doesn't come out the next day that everything was bought three or four times, or none of the impact we said was happening was actually happening. So what we've actually built, which is the entire sort of planting management suite that ultimately supports the back end of anything that we put on chain. It starts at the ground level with our collection platform. That works in low internet environments utilizes GPS coordinates helps support to make sure trees are being planted in the right location, the right survivability planting forms and things like that are being collected. And all that data can be aggregated and pulled into our management platform that effectively is used as a verification so you're able to use your map interface to see where all the data is coming in from. You're able to verify it, have clear record of any changes that happen. It identifies inconsistencies to say, you know, this polygon should only have planted 10,000 trees and you submitted 100,000 trees. And it'll identify those inconsistencies to basically make sure that we're utilizing ground truth as the very first step. And we kind of internally call it a tree RP so it's like an erp but for tree planting and what it does is it takes all that data from the ground and it attaches it to each individual tree once it has been fully verified through our platform and then that tree carries with it the entire sort of backup everything to do with field updates that come in everything to do with future survivability forms socioeconomic satellite imagery everything about that gets attached to that tree identifier and then it can be allocated and so this also solves for the issue of double counting in space
9: guild one is a canadian technology company that leverages blockchain technologies like smart contracts and digital assets to overcome some really major business challenges especially in the energy sector So this includes incredibly complex transactions and joint venture and partner relationships, as well as the growing challenge of managing the complex data behind carbon accounting, as well as mitigation through voluntary carbon credits. And this is through ESG one, our sustainability division in 2018 guild one conducted the world's first energy royalty transaction on blockchain together with a group of very innovative canadian producers as well as ATB. and this really demonstrated how blockchain can overcome a lot of the very complex data challenges in the energy industry and create far more automated systems that optimize the way the industry conducts its business relationships. Guild One also last year conducted the world's first voluntary carbon credit transaction as a digital asset that was fully integrated with energy sector infrastructure and data measurement. And this was an enormous milestone because There is an enormous need for solutions to automate the voluntary carbon credit sector, which is growing extremely rapidly, but really lacks trust and transparency around the data behind these credits. Guild One works closely with the Blockchain for Energy Consortium, which is a Houston-based organization of super majors, including Exxon, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, and Repsol, that are all uniting to explore how blockchain technology can optimize processes within the industry, help them become more sustainable, and help them save operational costs.
8: So for the clients that we we choose to work with and we take on there's a really wide variety of the services that we're providing so there certainly are audit clients that we have bitcoin mining for example is one of the audit types of clients that we have i work with clients across the spectrum bitcoin etms miners crypto exchanges staking liquidity you name it and it's actually been really very busy lately because there have been some regulatory changes and requirements in Canada, specifically around if you're a crypto asset trading platform, as defined by our securities administrators, you have to become a registered broker dealer. And in order to do that, there's a big list of requirements of what you need to do. First of which is having audited financials. For lots and of Companies and people in this community, they may not have been audited before. Either they hadn't worked at a company where they had to experience an audit before, or it was the first time having to go through an audit. So I know not everybody who's listening is an accountant, but getting to audit is not as simple as it would sound. So I do a lot of helping clients get ready for their audit. Um, Some of them are looking to IPO. So helping them understand what that regulatory hurdle is going to look like and what they're team makeup is going to need to look like. And just generally, because there's a lack of, or a shortage of talent, there's lots of talent, but there's a shortage of talent to go around in this space, we do fill in and help out with complex accounting topics or helping create reports maybe that IROC is going to be looking for. So there's all kinds of things that my team does and it's, it's very interesting and, and rewarding work.
0: Blockchain and cryptocurrency mining is not something you typically hear a great deal about, except for the occasional complaints about energy consumption or when in the distant future Ethereum will move from proof of work to proof of stake. Well, to set the record straight, we've brought together some mining veterans to give you the inside story on how Canada has industrialized blockchain mining and some surprise insights on the commercial and operational models of some of the biggest mining companies in the world. Your mining guides are Joseph, Emma and Jamie.
1: I came from a time where mining was laptops, like I was mining 10s of hundreds, if not 1000s of bitcoins a day on on multiple MacBooks. And so this was a time when there was maybe two to 300 people in the world who knew about the Bitcoin source code. And so I think my definition of mining is probably different than how anyone else would refer to it. It's all about the economic, social, political, and geographical landscape of a country that, in my opinion, sets the stage for success. When you think about Canada, we are highly resourced and rich. We have huge amounts of land. We have very, very cheap power. These things obviously all become incredibly beneficial when you think of the context of modern day Bitcoin mining, let's say. The two things that I think made like everything successful and made it possible is that you had this combination of this mining culture in a traditional sense, right? Like we are one of the largest resource markets in the world. Our capital markets like the TSX, TSXV, the majority of, I think, financial markets in Canada and the people around them are and come from a long history of resources. And so when you think about the structure historically of the country, mining from a capacity in the Bitcoin sense is fairly similar. And so you already have a lot of the knowledge and the expertise uh, in other dimensions that make us able to come together and bring these things together pretty quickly. Where I tended to focus over the last seven years was much more on the engineering side and the technology side, less so on the mining side. Our ability to pull in and source interested candidates from some of the best universities in the world, some of the best cryptographers early on in Bitcoin were all actually Canadian and some of them still are today. So you have this, this like deep rooted history in mining, which I think led into being able to allow us to scale mining capacity across Canada very quickly structure the, the capital market requirements to enable these companies to accelerate in a very, very regulatorily sound environment with energy costs that are actually uh, acceptable.
5: So I love mining in a way that's probably slightly unhealthy. It's really absolutely amazing community to be part of. And they're doing some really good things here in Canada. And I particularly want to call out Alberta. Alberta doing some really great things just in terms of mining. i have got some really great companies there, such as HUT 8 is there and you know they're doing some great things also in quebec they have argo blockchain and they also have some companies are setting up in new brunswick but uh, alberta is doing some really great things we've got some really great regulations and we've got something for everybody here you know if you want natural gas you know we've got that in alberta if you want hydro we've got that for you in quebec we've got that for you in new brunswick we have that for you in vancouver so it's really great options for people that want to do mining we have them here for people and come on down we'll we'll be happy to have you
11: Pudate was born late 2017 through an RTO. We went public in 2018 on the TSX Venture Exchange. In 2020, we moved up to the big board, as we call it, on the TSX. And then uh, this past June, we dual listed onto the NASDAQ as well. We are a fully Canadian company. We're headquartered in Toronto. All of our operations exist within Canada. We now have eight locations across the country, three dedicated to mining and five traditional data centers. We are very proud to have the largest amount of self-mined Bitcoin on our balance sheet of any public company in the world. When I took over, we were really entirely focused on Bitcoin mining. So at that time we had 109 megawatts in production, all being applied to Bitcoin mining. We bought five traditional data center assets through a transaction. We bought TerraGo, another Canadian public company. We bought TerraGo's co-location and cloud business and, and the data centers and team involved in supporting them. We mine Bitcoin with about 90% of our power, 10% of our power we use to host two strategic clients. Because we have so much Bitcoin on our balance sheet, some of it we put to work with strategic partners where we earn a yield which is revenue and of course, pure margin from that Bitcoin that we have held with both 1,000 with Genesis and 1,000 with Galaxy. We also announced back in June a strategic deal with NVIDIA to purchase really high end GPU cards that were built by NVIDIA really for the sole purpose of mining, in this case, Ethereum. So through that transaction, we started mining Ethereum in September of last year, but we mine Ethereum and get paid directly in Bitcoin from the mining pool. So it gives us a hedge against Bitcoin mining economics directly because we're mining an alternate blockchain, but we're, we're doing that to continue to add more Bitcoin to our balance sheet. One of the major differences between the compute used to mine Bitcoin and the compute used to mine Ethereum is the power draw. To mine Ethereum using GPU-based compute, you use a lot less power. Therefore, it's significantly less expensive from an operating expense perspective, which is predominantly driven by the cost of power. So by mining Ethereum, getting paid in Bitcoin, it allows us to essentially add a Bitcoin to our balance sheet for less than $3,000 Canadian, which of course is very compelling given the price of a Bitcoin today. There are quite a few miners in Canada, all different shapes and and sizes. I have three other publicly traded peers that have the majority of their operations based in Canada, actually five, five peers. And then there's a number of small private entities that are mining as well. I know people that are have a couple rigs running in their garages. There's all kinds of great stuff happening in the mining community across Canada. I would say there are two main reasons that fundamentally support Canada as a great jurisdiction for mining. Of course, our access to energy. We've got incredible energy available across the country. Bitcoin mining offers a really unique advantage in that we connect to a source of power, And we obviously, we monetize that power, we pay for that power. But when there's peak demand on the grid, we have the ability to shut our mining operations down within minutes and redistribute that power back to the grid, back to the local community when it's needed. So we provide an incredibly innovative opportunity when we partner with local utilities and local communities to offer stabilization and monetization to those assets
0: bonus round. No, wait,
12: epic bonus round.
0: I feel utterly privileged to bring you one of the most respected and recognized names in blockchain today. Author of probably the most read book on blockchain, the founder of the most influential global blockchain think tank, and a respected musician and recording artist, I bring you the legendary Don Tapscott with his fascinating insights into the history and challenges of growing blockchain adoption in Canada.
14: Since we wrote Blockchain Revolution in 2016, pretty much everything that we discussed is playing out real time. After the book was published, we created the Blockchain Research Institute, and we held a round table on the regulatory environment in Canada. And we also held a, another roundtable for government business academic leaders talking about how Canada could respond to this opportunity of blockchain. And as you know, we don't think this is some interesting new technology. We think it's the operating system for the second era of the digital age. For 40 years, we've had a first era mainframes, minis, PCs, the internet, the cloud, the web, big data, the mobile web, social media, and so on. And now we have technology extending itself into billions and trillions of inert objects that are becoming smart communicating devices that will do transactions we have technologies that learn to do things they weren't programmed to do with ai machine learning and to us the foundation is in fact blockchain and what it represents is the second era of the internet for those four years we've had an internet of information but when i send you some information i'm actually sending you a copy that doesn't work well for assets things of value like money securities intellectual property contracts deeds the data in our identities cultural assets like art or music or a vote copying those is not a good idea <laughs> you don't want some copying your vote or your identity and if i send you a thousand dollars it's important i don't still have the money cryptographers have called this the the double spend problem for decades and the way that we manage this problem is for intermediaries These intermediaries are a big trouble these days. In 2008, Satoshi solved the double spend problem. And now for the first time in human history, people can trust each other. They can transact, they can do business peer to peer. And trust is not achieved by an intermediary. It's achieved by cryptography, collaboration, and some clever code. If this is true, the blockchain represents the second era of the internet and the foundation of the second era of the digital age, then Canada getting on top of this is absolutely critical. And when it comes to Canada, there's been good news and bad news. I was talking to a journalist the other day about the challenges in Canada, understanding this. And I I asked him what's the most valuable business that's ever been created in Canada. And he guessed. Well, I don't know, was it RIM, Blackberry, or Nortel, maybe it was Shopify. Ethereum is worth four times the value of Shopify. It's worth more than the three largest Canadian banks combined. And this was created by Vitalik, a 19 year old dropout, University of Waterloo. And that was evidence of the great things that are happening in this country. We have the world's largest think tank, Blockchain Research Institute, that's based here. There's a vibrant ecosystem in cities all across Canada. But on the other hand, the regulatory environment prevents all kinds of good things from happening. We drove Ethereum out of this country. It could have been based here with a different regulatory environment. The most successful business in Canadian history. In the research that we've done, this is the number one impediment to this whole thing going forward. Our government leaders, and to a certain extent business leaders, just don't get this. In my mind, blockchain and everything that's being built on top of it, including the digitization of all assets, this is the biggest digitization that's ever occurred in history, this dwarfs these other technologies, but we don't get it as a country. So you think about something like DeFi, Canada's got some great banks, although they have their growing problems. Well, FinTech is is just the tip of the iceberg. DeFi represents the replacing of everything that banks do with software. Now that's not gonna happen, of course, because smart banks are trying to figure this out and figure out how to re-intermediate, how to create new value in the middle. But with DeFi, poses an interesting dilemma for Canada. With the existing financial institutions come all kinds of computer systems and cultures and on top of them, a regulatory environment and a set of regulators and a set of laws and a set of government institutions that overall in this country are pretty oblivious to what all of this represents. So we said this years ago, and it hasn't changed fundamentally. The attitude among senior government leaders in our most important federal departments, and also provincially, is pretty oblivious to this fundamental transformation that's happening. The implications for Canada are profound. The first era of the digital age was based in Silicon Valley. Where's the second era going to be based? It won't just be one location. I'm not sure it's going to be Silicon Valley. You've got a massive ecosystem in ZOO, thousands and thousands of people, and that's just one of many in the world that are underway. I mean, the government of China, notwithstanding its Retrogressive attitude towards all kinds of things, including privacy, is putting billions of dollars into five or six big centers in China Shanghai, Shenzhen, Beijing, Hangzhou, Guangzhou. And when I was last in China before the pandemic, I was introduced by the vice chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, who read greetings from President Xi, and he said, that there were two technologies for the next decades in China, AI and blockchain. So overall the picture in Canada, well, it's not so bright, you got to wear shades, but if we can crack this complete lack of knowledge in part in, in terms of government leaders, and we're working very hard to do that at the Blockchain Research Institute, then I think that there's no reason why Canada can't be a true global leader. When Blockchain Revolution came out in 2016, that summer, Alex and I invited a number of leaders of the entire movement to our cottage country place up in Muskoka. And we had Joe Lubin from Ethereum. We had Tim Temlin, the CEO of the Linux Foundation, Brian Bellendorf, who was running Hyperledger. There were Bitcoin people, Perianne Boring was the founder of the Chamber of Digital Commerce. There were a bunch of people like that, 15 people. And we had a real heart-to-heart conversation about how to move this whole thing forward. And we came up with a series of 10 actions that needed to be taken. And we actually created a little uh, impromptu organization called the Muskoka Group, Muskoka being the region where this event took place. And you can go to uh, muskokagroup.org and see the statement of principles and the action items. One of the action items was, we need better research about use cases, about implementation challenges, and so on. So after that meeting, Alex, my son, and I uh, got together, and we decided, shoot, let's just do it. So we reached out. We got 20 companies. They each kicked in 150 k And flash forward six years, we've had over 100 companies that have funded Largest independent think tank on blockchain in the world, I think. We've done 140 projects looking at opportunities, issues, regulation, challenges, and so on. And we've also, as part of that, launched, I would say, the premier blockchain educational program for managers in the world. It's on Coursera, and it's the highest rated blockchain course on Coursera. There are 130,000 learners now in partnership with INSEAD. Also, uh, Alex did a TEDx talk in San Francisco. These things are normally watched on YouTube by 1,500 people. He's got close to 800,000 views on that thing. And I did an actual TED talk, which is over 7 million views on TED.com alone. So we're very pleased at the way this whole thing evolved. And we think that This Blockchain Research Institute is making a real difference. One thing we've done is we've released a bunch of our intellectual property, millions of dollars worth, into the commons, and that's available for the world now. And uh, a lot of people take advantage of that stuff for no charge. It's at blockchainresearchinstitute.org.
0: Don mentioned the importance of talent and the role of research in any successful blockchain community. And with that, we take a look at some of Canada's impressive academic institutions and the role they have played in advancing blockchain technology and capability. You're going to hear from Amy, George, Mark, and a fascinating grassroots story from Vicky Lemieux, Associate Professor at the University of British Columbia.
3: Canada has a great academic history, and earlier I was talking about the Central Bank of Canada. They commissioned studies in uh, three different academic institutions to further understand the implications of deploying a central bank digital currency, and these institutions are rallying together. The University of Toronto is working with the University of Alberta. And um, there are other examples. McGill and Osgood is involved. Just right across the country, we have strong academic presence at the highest level of enterprise in the country to, to try and understand what the implications are. Because when a mysterious new tech emerges and later its effects become profound, then later everyone, you know, wonders why its powerful promise wasn't more obvious from the start. And it's the academic institutions, you know, are quite well positioned to to help us understand why perhaps it is obvious, you know, we go back to thinking about paper money in the 13th century and personal computers in 1975 and the internet in 1993. And now we're talking about DeFi being the acronym kind of for decentralized finance in 2022. And the DeFi story is in terms of how we're you know I think of it sometimes in in how we're learning to stop worrying and embrace the abstraction of money and finance being that abstraction and academic institutions help us understand what that actually means it was as early as the 13th century Kublai Khan embarked on this bold experiment China at the time was divided into these different regions many of those regions issued their own coins and you know discouraged trade with the empire so Kublai Khan decreed that henceforth money would take the form of paper and he was really ahead of his time and he recognized what matters about money isn't what it looks like or even what it's backed by or but whether people believe enough in it enough to use it and there's a lot of research not about that particular but about you know the implications that we're talking about with central bank digital currencies being issued at a sovereign level and you know academia is something that is well positioned to help us understand the implications and the effect and to project what they might be
6: Going back again to, you know, the, the diversity of Canada it brings in all the talent from around the world. So that's a really good thing about it as specifically where people get educated in the space. For example, me, it was always on the meetups, conferences because at the beginning uh, I, I would say Canadian universities kept away from it because uh, within the community, I know that we wanted to have some courses at some of the universities and city of Toronto has, I think three universities and like four colleges. Uh, so there was a big demand for it, but they kept away. I think York uh, University, they developed something which is called uh, the Blockchain Hub. That was in 2017 and they had pretty good training on certificates and all different branches of blockchain. But soon after that came George Brown College and it offered like a full time. And I think it's still the only blockchain diploma in Canada available. And it's a program where which lasts a year and a half. And you have to have a computer science or an engineering degree as a prerequisite. What I've noticed also lately, you know, you can always see uh, white papers coming from Canadian universities, but specifically for the academia, I think uh, University of British Columbia last year or two years ago, they started to introduce like masters and doctoral levels of specializations in, in blockchain. So Canada, yes, they, they've been in the educational space since 2017. And you can see now at the different universities, they're building courses as well at UFT at Ryerson from a demographic point of view the talent. I think it's pretty close to 50, 50, uh, as I mentioned, I, I teach at George Brown, so I can see this on, on the, on, on, the ground level. It's definitely not, uh, you know, strictly a male industry, as you can see it in the, in the mainstream media i think one thing that it's lacking it's like the good quality of professors and maybe there is not enough uh, courses offered but that's me maybe because i'm in the in the space
7: i would say academia from my perspective as far as i know and as far as i heard from the students academia has been really lagging behind and very slow to pick up at least from the student perspective I heard only complaints at, you know, uh, I'm not going to name the universities, but pretty much every university out there, uh, mostly, I mean, the one I, I, you know, I'm I'm bumping often uh, are in Toronto, Uh, students were extremely frustrated, not enough blockchain courses. And certainly, I mean, there are some professors like I, I know uh, a good friend, written papers, has been very early, wrote different papers about, you know, oracles, very, very technical papers. I know in Waterloo also, I mean, some of the professors I was talking to in my time at Cisco that we founded a few with a Canada research chair from a, a Cisco research chair, an industry research chair, were very early also on blockchain space for their own intra- academic interests. That didn't translate very well into courses and, and training uh, in academia. I mean, there is probably some good reason for that because the technology is very emergent. My approach has been to go directly to the college, which is the more practical. You know, college in Canada is really like a community college. So they focus on short-term training, it could be a one-year training or two-year training. Well, they're doing degrees now. And, you have also like a mixed breed called polytechnics where they, they balance the theory and the practice kind of between a university and a community college. But so my focus has been to, to really start tackling the big gap with the college. And the, what is the big gap? The big gap is actual talent, actual developers who know how to code and who, we can actually work on a startup and develop some. IT, I I don't want to be be rude on on, on the podcast, but early days, blockchain, they were pretty much all self-taught developers. So these are very smart people who know how to find their way through open source code. They read the code, they talk to each other, they discuss. It's a a sub-community outside of academic circle, in open source circles, in, uh, you know, in, in GitHub uh, right now, it's in, in Discord, but, you know, uh, these the, type of uh, communities, these it can be a little opaque, uh, a little hard to get in for beginners. At the time we needed to move out from the few genius could open the way themselves. To a little bit as the, the mass of developers, if we if we really want blockchain to become a technology like you know Java, .NET, some you know JavaScript, some other technology, we need the developers, we need the mass of developers, and we have to make it easy for them to learn it fast, uh, learn it well, and focus on actually developing code. And that that was the the, the whole idea of getting the the Georgetown College involved, and they, they were already doing. The same type of programs in data science they were exploring AI now so that was the right partner and we' are just so happy we make it happen So it, it's it's part of the ecosystem by no means the only thing but I'm glad to say that with the support of the amazing blockchain community in Toronto we were able to put this program up and running in seven or eight months I mean we started in January and the, the college was opening the first cohort in September.
15: Now, the thing about records is that they touch every sector and every aspect of human activity. So right from the outset, I understood that research into the record keeping applications of blockchain. I mean, essentially, a blockchain is a distributed ledger. So fundamentally, it is a type of record in a record system. So I fundamentally understood that it needed to be multidisciplinary in composition if we were really going to research this. And so it needed to be, I guess that's where the word cluster comes from. It needed to be comprised of distributed nodes of disciplinary expertise and sectoral expertise. And it needed to to reach out into the community because we in the UBC Academy at that time, didn't have any knowledge or particular expertise of this technology. What was really happening and the knowledge was really in the Decentralist community in Vancouver, informal groups like uh, d And I made contact with people in that group. It's a fantastic community of Decentralists and others working in the blockchain space that have become our industry partners. And I guess sort of in the spirit of a lot of the, of the blockchain educational initiatives of the time it wasn't you know born as a formal academic type research project or enterprise really at that point so after completing that that small project which you know i guess i did have formal funding for the research but it was very much a collective the students that worked with me on that project and some other students who got wind of you know what i was doing and were interested in this technology from UBC's Bitcoin Club, which predated my interest. I think they were, I can't remember the the date that they were founded, but were primarily interested in in Bitcoin um, rather than necessarily the underlying technology or other use cases. But about 15 students and I got together with a couple other faculty, Mark David Seidel from our Sauder Business School being one. We basically just started the first summer school. And it was only a week long at that time, but it ended with a, with a, what we've now called a -a blockathon for social good, where we got together. We had a problem that we wanted to solve. That summer it was focused on a health related use case, the, the problem of simplifying the process of gaining individuals consent for their sharing of their health data for health related personalized medicine, precision medicine and health research we just got together and with community partners and we organized a summer school we coded together we tried to figure this thing out if one person was stuck somewhere the other person would help them but it wasn't only technology focused we had you know wonderful presentation from marie eager at the time talking to us about how to approach decentralized community organization There was this wonderful energy that came together because we felt that we were working with something new and exciting and with the possibility to, yeah, to change the world for the better. And uh, so after that initial summer institute, we just kept going and uh, we're going to have another summer institute this year and Blockathon for Social Good. This year, for the first time, we're doing it in collaboration with Lucerne University of Applied Sciences and Arts. In Switzerland, we decided to focus on this before the Ukraine crisis, supporting people who are needing a way to securely and privately document their right to ownership and occupancy of homes their lands their properties and these are individuals who have had to flee conflict affected areas and um, you know syria afghanistan there are far too many places in the world right now to think about and and of course most recently ukraine it is not just looking at blockchain technology as a technology or as a, a technical artifact in fact In 2018, we held a workshop, again, with individuals from multiple disciplines. So we had law, economics, computer science, engineering, public health, archival science, management information systems, the list goes on. Individuals, academics that came together to work on a book, which was collectively called Building Decentralized Trust. It was published by Springer. in in 2020, where we set forth, we explored um, various themes that are associated with blockchain technology, like governance, security, and so on. And we set forth a vision based on using complex systems theory and some theories from the social sciences, and in particular, Latour's ontology uh, and actor network theory, And we set forth this vision of blockchain as a socio-informational technical system and then developed a question-led design campus. And that is what we teach our students, how we teach our students to design blockchain technology, blockchain solutions through this socio-informational technical lens. So not just looking at the technical components, but looking at all of the social actors, looking at the ledger, the informational components and how they need to work, and with the technical components, how they're all instantiated, and how all of these different components, or I would say subsystems of complex system, work together to provide, at some level, societal trust.
0: Canada is famous for its welcoming approach to people from all nations and walks of life. And so you would expect Canada to be a leader on the topic of diversity in blockchain and the wider technology landscape. To give you their take on this important topic are Emma, Jamie, Hillary, Louisa, and Amy.
5: Obviously, Canada is smaller than a lot of other countries in the world. But I believe that there's a really thriving community in terms of if you need help, People in Canada are definitely willing to help you. Could we be doing more on the diversity front? I do think so. I think that while we have a lot of women, probably more women in blockchain in Canada than we do in the rest of the world, because you know, like we, we're a force to be reckoned with, and I'm absolutely proud of all the friends I have, and don't know what I would do without them. Just in terms of getting, you know, more women of color, that would be great to see. Right now, I think I I only know three women of color, and I don't know very many men of color. Um, I do see quite a few South Asians and they're fantastic and they're doing some really good things and um, through them I have learned. I find that's what what, whatever happens in India is sort of you know a sort of precursor to what may happen in North America so it's always good to kind of have those really good conversations um, with people and I think that's a really good thing about Canada because it's a melting pot of individuals from all over the world what they do is you know they go home on vacation and they come back with stories about what they've seen and what we should be um, watching out for and they add us to different groups that are all over the world and I think that sort of enable can sort of get in front of some challenges before you know the regulations kind of hit us full in the face we're able to talk to our regulators and say hey you know you've asked us for comments on this here's what we think Is something that you may want to um, think about and that sort of helped get us on the good side of the regulators, because we're coming with thoughtful pieces, as opposed to you know just a lot of noise.
11: There is a ton of female energy and representation across the ecosystem, and they're very welcoming. I was new 13 months ago, and the number of women in the industry that reached out to welcome me and offer support, it was truly overwhelming. I've never experienced anything like it that was spectacular. And then I, I have the luxury myself of having a leadership team that's made up of 50% women. Our board is 40% women. There is no shortage of female talent in this space. It's, it's really incredible. I think there's so much energy and desire to drive innovation, but, but also from a very community-oriented spirit, which I think attracts a diverse mix of talent. And most people in this ecosystem, and, and you know, Bitcoiners in particular are believers in the broad global societal good that this type of technology is creating.
4: I think that there's always more work to do until we have an ecosystem that reflects the outside world will never be as perfectly diverse as end users. And I think that's an ambitious goal, but it's one that's worth striving for because diverse teams outperform less diverse teams. Uh, they're more financially successful and they build more robust technologies. There have been early initiatives in Canada to increase women's participation in blockchain. In fact, Vitalik Buterin's mother was one of the leaders behind Crypto Chicks. Don't love the name, but I really love the work that they do in hosting hackathons and workshops and other types of programs to engage teenage girls, young women. And, you know, they were the first to do so, and I give them a ton of credit. From a multicultural point of view, I think representation across different races, uh, sexual orientations is quite good. It's quite good in Canada. So that's just a reflection of Toronto on the whole. I think we are um, an extremely diverse city as is Vancouver and Montreal. And these are the three cities where great blockchain innovation is taking place.
2: What Canada has gotten right goes beyond just women in blockchain or achieving diversity or uh, promoting inclusion specifically for blockchain and tech. At the end of the day, there are a number of programs that are focused towards women in STEM in general. I think i volunteered at an event hosted by uh, University of Toronto, encouraging girls in middle school and going there and speaking to them about how technology and engineering isn't something as scary as they may think it is and as they're thinking through the majors and what they want to study in university consider those majors in addition to some of the other ones that they're currently looking at so really starting at a young age and promoting mathematics science engineering all of that has been somewhat of a of a positive shift of momentum that I'm seeing for women in tech and at the end of the day there're just a lot of badass women driving the show and pushing things forward. So I sit on a non-for-profit organization with a number of women in the space called the Canadian Blockchain Association for Women. And what we're trying to do is continue that goal in getting out there, doing events, providing grants and scholarships for women, younger women, so that they can learn more about crypto blockchain and understanding the roles that are available to them. And looking at traditional industries where women have somewhat reached a glass ceiling and have been able to share with them how switching over to this side of the pond, they may be able to smash through that and succeed in other, in other ways.
3: True innovation includes everyone. Canada is doing its best through education, discussion, and engagement to build a supportive network, I would say as revolutionary as the blockchain itself. And that in and of itself will do so much to develop the depth and breadth of the talent here. People can do what they want to do. You don't need a university program in computer science, although that does help immensely to develop talent. You really need the curiosity and ability to... Sift through the noise and to hear the music. There's so much to do beyond coding. and bringing together, you know a holistic approach to the technology is really something that Canada is well positioned to do, specifically because we have this commitment to diversity. And there's so much still, not just diversity, but equality. And so there's still a lot to be done. but I think, Overall, there is a huge diversity, you know, not just of blockchain-related educational pathways that are currently being offered, but as well as the commitment to including diverse perspectives and backgrounds.
0: We've heard from a number of guests that while Canada has contributed more than most, there remain significant barriers to scaling the blockchain community and use of blockchain technology in the near future. Don gives us another schooling on what he sees as the critical things to change in Canada and for other nations looking in, followed by passionate recommendations from Joseph, Emma, and Hillary.
14: Canadian government and business leaders need a wake up call. We need to change our regulatory environment. Of course, regulators need to protect consumers and protect investors and so on, but part of a solid regulatory environment is to have laws and rules that enable innovation to grow and to flourish. And right now we're way over on one side of that. We need our banks to wake up and understand that DeFi is not just a existential threat, but is a huge opportunity. We need government leaders at all levels to start to understand how this technology can be used to create Better, cheaper government, transform the operations of government for the better. You think about something like the Department of Finance, which, by the way, is deeply involved in creating a a coherent regulatory environment or not. Why don't we use blockchain for taxation? There's a thing called the Digital Economy Taxation Initiative based in Switzerland that we've partnered with. I gave the opening talk to their big Congress, and I talked about 10 ways that blockchain could transform the collection and management of taxes. Why do you need to calculate payroll tax? If this role all in the blockchain, just pay somebody and the tax would be calculated. And smart contracts would govern the collection and use of the tax. Every department could be affected this way. The Department of the Environment It's time to tokenize carbon credits. And for the department to use this technology to create much more liquid carbon markets and to help companies build carbon offsetting through tokens into their products and services. Think about ICED, the Canadian Department of Innovation Science and Economic Development. The whole focus there is about AI and quantum computing. No, they need to build an contribute to the creation of innovation clusters that embrace blockchain technology. Our current tax laws ought to be revised. There's a a thing called flow through tax credits in oil and gas that have created a multi-billion dollar R&D industry in this country, bigger than any such industry in the world. Why don't we apply that not just to oil and gases and extractive resources, Let's apply those to technology so that investors could expense an investment. This would instantly bring a billion and a half dollars into investment in technology in Canada. There are many, many things that could be done. And it's not surprising that these impediments exist because overall, blockchain represents the heart of a new paradigm. And when you get a paradigm shift, these things are they cause dislocation, disruption, confusion. They're nearly always received badly, coolness or worse, hostility. Vested interests fight against change, and leaders of old paradigms have great difficulty embracing the new. So it's understandable where this lack of knowledge or even hostility comes from, but it's not acceptable. And so I know that I speak for myself and Alex and others with the Blockchain Research Institute that we're very, very determined to create a glasnost and uh, to help our government leaders really understand this historic opportunity. And in doing so, to enable Canada to be a true innovation economy.
1: It might not be a a good news answer. I don't know if that's okay. I, I think the unfortunate part of Canada is that the things that made it beautiful don't really exist anymore today in Canada. And it's not to say that there isn't innovators still there, but I think that the big difference that had changed was regulation and the approach to the ecosystem that regulators have taken. I think that regulation does two things, enables incredible growth or destroys something that is beautiful. So the securities laws have become a big problem, right? Uh, and And I will say that I was an advisor to the Securities Commission I left that role and I wish no bad or hard feelings on any person individually. I was advising all of the regulatory bodies, but when you take the approach that everyone is bad in a space, everything is a security uh, in a new world of new technology, and you put in a system that makes regulation come before the ability to innovate, it's like it prevents a system of innovation, right? Like if we are having to be worried that we are doing something wrong before we've even been able to build an experiment, then like how do you even start the conversation of innovation? With that, like directly, I think that what's happened is There has been such aggressive clampdowns in the ability to build trading infrastructure, the ability to work on new types of businesses like exchanges and exchanges are the lifeblood to digital asset ecosystems, right? Like our ability to create liquidity and to match people in a liquidity environment are what really has led to the explosion of innovation. Being able to look at early examples like Ethereum, Ethereum could never be done today in Canada because it is indefinitely a security at its birth. Because we are unable to redo those types of things today, it's very hard to look at the next Ethereum being built in Canada because it would be deemed illegal immediately.
5: I'd like to see one thing that might drive more diversity, more women in blockchain would be, I guess, a knowledge that it's not scary that you can build a business here. You can have companies here. The companies do pay well and they've got generally really good policies for working there and i think that that might be helpful the thing is with canadians and <laughs> canadians and canadian companies and we have a company and we just kind of get keep our head down and we just work so maybe if we get a better job at advertising who we are and what we do and the benefits that come with working for the company as well as working in blockchain we might get more people interested in working for the company And therefore, might drive more adoption because the government will not, will probably be less likely to try to shut something down if it's driving jobs, right? That's what all governments want. They want their people to work so they can pay taxes. (laughs) Yeah, I said that.
4: (laughs) When we see more leadership, when people from traditional industries take a leadership role and take risks around implementation and demonstrate the return on their investment of that implementation. When we have more trusted voices who understand the technology and will refute the misinformation that exists around it, I do think we'll see more widespread adoption. I believe that transformation is all about leadership. The people who originally implemented blockchain technology at Walmart in food traceability were absolutely pioneers and they took career risks to experiment with the new technology to understand its opportunities its limitations and really go with it and i give huge credit to the people at walmart for jumping in and they are absolutely de facto the leaders in enterprise blockchain in my mind and it's that kind of leadership that will help blockchain to be more widely adopted for crypto assets to be more widely adopted and scale faster
0: thanks again for listening to the blockchain won't save the world podcast as always opinions in this episode are mine and those of my guests alone if you want to find out more please feel free to connect with me on linkedin check out some of the other episodes on the blockchain won't save the World podcast and check out the youtube channel also called blockchain won't save the world stay safe out there
4: Let me say, don't underestimate the importance of a white man with a beard talking about diversity. Keep going and keep talking about it because it's a conversation that needs to take place.